Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. A Motorsport Podcast Network production. Ah, yes. Welcome along, V8 Sleuth Podcast. I'm Aaron Noonan. Great to have you with me for another week. And after a bit of time in the studio in the last couple of weeks, this week we get back into an interview. And in fact, two weeks of interviews, two parts, with none other than the two-time British Touring Car Champion, our favourite Scottish racing driver, John Clellan. Now, I haven't seen John in person since he was last at Bathurst, and that's now, when I look at the calendar, 2005. It's nearly 20 years ago since the Scott was at the mountain. Of course, his British Touring Car Championship stuff is probably what he's best known for worldwide, but here in Australia, he really did score a special place in local fans' hearts, because not just driving with Peter Brock, but he became effectively the unofficial ambassador for V8 Racing and the Bathurst 1000. He loved the mountain, he still does, and uh, as you'll hear in this podcast, there might be a way that we can get JC back to the mountain, and maybe this year, how good would that be? As always, he's a wonderful storyteller, he's been there, done it, got the t-shirt. We talk about super touring, we talk about the Vectra that he's bought, the ex-Peter Brock car that John raced in the British Touring Car Championship as well. We talk about the early years, his motorsport hero, Jimmy Clark. We talk about how he got into racing and and his dad's involvement and and how he got connected to Vauxhall. There's so much to cover here. And of course, that 90s era of super touring and his longtime association driving those Vauxhall Cavaliers and then, of course, the Vectras that came after it until his retirement from the BTCC in 1999. There's plenty of stories in this part of the pod. Next week, we will drop part two. But sit back, relax, and enjoy John Clellan on the V8 Sleuth Podcast. John Clellan, welcome to the V8 Sleuth Podcast. My first question is, why are you at work? Shouldn't you be retired now and not trying to sell Volvos to the poor, unsuspecting people of Scotland? Yep, you're absolutely right. I should be retired. But uh, the trouble is, I enjoy it so much. I've always, I've just had a, you know, get up in the morning and I need to do something. I can't retire I can't go home and just sit and cut the grass or fight with my wife or whatever else I would do but I really really enjoy it and the whole COVID thing meant that we we it changed the world really and our business in the car industry just got better it got healthier everybody couldn't go on holiday they they couldn't go down the pub they were they were really stuck at home for a long time and they had money for doing nothing so they were just buying cars it was great so We've actually had two and a half years of uh, fantastic business. So why would I go home and sit at home? I need something to do. <laughs> well, we appreciate you taking the time to uh, to sit down and, and have a chat with me because there's so much to chat about. Obviously, you're, you're pretty much the unofficial ambassador for all things Bathurst and V8s over your way. Um, but where did the love and passion for, for motor racing and cars and things with engines come from? Was that something that came from within the family at home? Yeah, it, it was. And uh, my father was a car dealer. Um, he was also the main scrutineer for Scotland. Uh, he would travel around Scotland, hill climb sprints, rally crosses, circuit races. 
and he would make sure that the cars were scrutinized to, to make sure they were legal to race. And while he was doing that, I would wander about the paddock and look at the cars and hang over the barrier watching the racing. And, you know, you just get that bug. And it was probably back in the days when they had things like Castrol R smell as well. And, you know, <laughs> things like that. That The smell, the sound of, of motorsport is what gets you hooked on it. And, you know, going forward, going into the distance, I'm sure we'll have battery-powered cars and, do you know what? I hope I'm not around when that happens because the reason I got involved in it was all the sound and the smell and that's just what they're all about. Uh, for me, that's how it started. But I didn't start karting. I never, ever had a go-kart apart from one uh, torrid old bomber that my father took back as a part exchange and we could never get it to go. And I think we ended up towing it up and down the main road behind a Lotus Cortina trying to get it to go and it never <laughs> would do so. Yeah, well, karting was not my thing. So unlike the Lewis Hamiltons of this world, if you want, that, um, you know, had done hundreds and hundreds of races by the time they got to 10 years of age, um, you know, it's, it's a totally different ball game For me, I got to 17 and I went into hill climbs and sprints. I did the odd autocross and rallycross. And fortunately, I did a lot of nighttime rallies as well. So that was just a bit of plot and bash and... Uh, anything with wheels on it, I would have driven. And fortunately, I was fairly handy at it and realised that I wasn't bending them very often, I wasn't blowing them up, and I was getting some really good results. So it kind of went went on like that. But my old man had a, with him being a car dealer, he was, he was pretty tight, and his deal was he would buy the car, I had to find the money to run it, and um, I would have to give him his money back at the end of the year. And I thought, what a tight old git. But it was a really good grounding. It was a really good uh, base to start from. And it wasn't like he would just spend the money and I would not really appreciate it. So I had to work my ass off for it. And I, I, I thought I was fairly good at it. But he bought a thing called a Chevron B8 um, for me to go hill climbing with. And a Chevron B8... Had a two-liter BMW in it, the lovely, lovely little car, and he gave fourteen hundred UK pounds for this thing. And I hill climbed it for a year, and I got two grand back for it, so I got profit. And I thought, well, I was clever. Um, it then went through various different owners, one of whom was Stirling Moss. It then went to a very wealthy banker in Japan. It then came back to Sweden, and it was up for sale recently in the UK for just slightly under £300,000. <laughs> and I got £2,000. I got £2,000 for it. So that just proves that I'm really not a very good car dealer. I mean, if I kept it in the garage, I could have got a fortune for the bloody thing. <laughs> if only you knew. If only you knew. But the thing is that we, we, didn't, we, didn't have, we didn't have the disposable money just to say, listen, yeah, leave that in the garage. We'll buy the next thing that we're going to raise. Um, you had to sell the one you had before you moved on to the next level up or whatever. And yeah. that's kind of how it always worked. We weren't fortunate enough to have a big shed and plenty of money just to leave it in the corner of the garage. And actually, yeah. if I'd kept all the cars that I've raced over the years in the garage and put them up for sale now, geez, I could retire because they're all <laughs> worth a lot more money nowadays. Exactly. If only you'd known. If only you'd known. As a young Scottish kid growing up, was, was Jim Clark... Absolutely your hero there in that 60s when you were a teenager? 
Uh, absolutely. Jim Clark was the only driver as far as I was concerned. He was he was doing things worldwide that, you know, w was putting Scotland on the map. Then Jackie Stewart came along and, and helped to, to, to endorse that whole thing. But Jim Clark was my hero. Um, as a 15-year-old kid in... Uh, 1967 or 68, and I can't remember which year it was now, he ran the Lotus, uh, I think it was the 49, uh, with a DFV in it for the very first Grand Prix ever at Zandvoort in Holland. And I was there on a family holiday, and I've got a few lovely pictures of me standing right up against the wing mirrors of this car, taking a picture of Jim Clark as he was about to go out and qualify. And it was pretty special. And he just became a real hero of mine all through, until sadly he was killed. And he, in those days, he, he would he would race sports cars, he would race Formula 2, he would race Formula 1, he would race touring cars. So he won the British Touring Car Championship in a Lotus Cortina. And that same trophy has Jim Clark's name on it. It has mine on it twice. And the first year I won it in 89... That was the most important thing for me was to have my name on a trophy alongside Jim Clark because it just it meant so much to me. It was it was more important than winning the championship or winning the races was just to have my name on that trophy along with his. He was just if he was something else, goodness knows what would have happened, how many championships he would have won had he survived Hockenheim. But we'll never know, sadly. Mm, no, exactly, exactly. What, what? I think one of the things that our uh, the Aussies here know you for so strongly is your your GM connection with with Vauxhall, and of course you, you raced Holdens here in Australia as well. But where did the GM thing start? Was it through your dad? Yeah, I mean we we were Opal dealers. Um, we did a we took a Colt dealership on Mitsubishi Colt dealership on in nineteen seventy six. And um, because in the borders here, there are no racetracks, so I decided to go rallying. So I did the Scottish Rally Championship, which meant 10 rallies. And um, in the forests, no tarmac. There was only two rallies had any tarmac in it. And when I got on a tarmac stage, I was you know really right there with the rest of them. But in the gravel, in the forests... I'm, I'm the actually I'm the only person the Forestry Commission has ever written to and asked me to stop rallying because I was knocking more trees down than they were. <laughs> it was an absolutely I, I I was going to kill myself. So at the end of the season, um, we'd won the class a few times. Every time we saw tarmac, as I say, we were we were really good. But I thought if I keep this up, I I'm going to kill myself. So I gave up rallying, and it was just at the same time. We took on Opel as a franchise instead of uh, Mitsubishi. And Opel and Vauxhall are part of the General Motors family, so we ended up with Vauxhall as well. And the connection through my father, and you know, he was closely connected to the Vauxhall motorsport team, and he helped get a bit of sponsorship for me to run a production car. And then when a guy called Tony Lanfranchi, who was the, the main... He drove the Group A Opel Monza uh, that uh, that was built for him, uh, competing in the championship in the UK. While he was away driving that, I would cover for him in the, in the production car. And more often than not, I would win the class or win the race. And I think 
with a bit of help, obviously, from my father at the time and the people at General Motors, well, you better have a bit, few more quid and we'll run a proper team. And with three Opel Monzas, Tony Lanfranchi, Jerry Marshall and myself in identical Opel Monzas, I would win some, he would, Jerry would win, Tony would win. So I was holding my own against guys that I'd only ever read about or looked up to. And I remember the very first race in my own Opel Commodore um, before we joined the Monza team, uh, went to Thruxton. First time I'd ever seen Thruxton, first time I'd ever been there. And Thruxton is one of those tracks, it's, you know, 90% of the lap is flat out, absolutely flat on the floor. And very brave, very high speed and very dangerous. And it unfortunately, it's in a sort of conservation area, so you can't test a lot there because of the noise levels. And I went down for, uh, for, for qualifying. There was no practice, straight into qualifying. And I remember before the qualifying, Jerry, Jerry Marshall came up to me and he said, um, you ever been here before, son? And I said, no, I've seen it on the TV, though. And I've watched, and obviously long before the days of simulators and things like that. So um, out we went in qualifying, and I stuck it on pole. And... Um, Jerry came up to me afterwards, and to be fair, he shook my hand and said, good effort, son. We'll see if you're still there at the end. And it was one of those things that, it was a bit like I remember Martin Brundle years ago telling a really funny story about when he did the IROC series in America against the NASCAR blokes. And he'd stuck it, I think either stuck it on pole or in the front row for this banked oval race. And he said, um, we were all on the on, on the bank and waiting to get in the cars to start the race and Dale Earnhardt walked past and said to him, remember your wife and kids. <laughs> and it was kind of it was kind of one of those situations with Jerry where he said to me, well, we'll see how you are at the end. <laughs> and um, I was third, I think, at the end of that race, which was my first time ever down there. And it kind of went on from there. It just, all of a sudden, I think, there's this bloke come down from Scotland to take on the, the the big boys down in England, and we managed it. And it just, literally, it went from strength to strength, really. Every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars. Unforgettable. And it got you to the point where you got your name on that trophy that, that Jimmy Clark had his name on, the, the Bruce Touring Car Championship, which you got it twice in 89. And back then, though, that was before the two-litre Super Tours. That was back in the multi-class era, and you were in a little Vauxhall, weren't you? And it was the way that the points worked. But wasn't there a story that you had to pull a bit of a Swifty for that last race to make sure that you didn't get taken out so you could still win the championship? Yeah, well, it was a, it was a race. I mean, it was. I, I felt that year in 89, it was a class structure. There was four classes or something, and I was in the two-litre class and the, the fire-breathing uh, Sierra Cosworth. So I think there was two of Dick Johnson's cars there, uh, that Rob Gravett was driving, and uh, Andy Rouse and guys like Steve Soper, they were there in the Sierras. And then there was the BMW M3s, and then there was 
my two-litre class that I was in. And I always felt like I didn't really deserve to win the championship because I'd never won a race. I was winning the class all the time and I was setting fastest laps every time we went in the class. But to be fair, there was no chance of me ever winning a race against them lads. And the final race at Silverstone... I was nip and tuck. We were, I think we were even points with James Weaver and the BMW. It was run by ProDrive, Dave Richards, ProDrive team at the time. And um, we went into the final race uh, at level on points. I remember the BMW guys uh, took me, the ProDrive guys took me into the back of the truck and cable tied me to the, to the bench in the truck and shut the door on the basis that I was going to be locked in there for the start of the race. <laughs> But the, uh, I, I was allowed out. I was allowed out, but there was a degree of paranoia that there was a couple of BMWs. It had been wet qualifying, and I'd qualified way further forward than I should have done, right in amongst all the BMWs. And there was a sort of a, a thought that, well, there'd been a conversation. Somebody had said, one of them BMW lads has been told to um, help you off the track and let the BMW of James Weaver win the championship. And I got a little bit paranoid about it. So I told no one what I was going to do. And I'd qualified right in the middle of the pack. And I said to, I, I was staying with a pal of mine, Jeremy Rossiter, who used to own Spax uh, Shock Absorber Company, him and his wife and myself and my wife. And we were sitting having a dinner and a glass of wine the night before the race. Um, and I said to him, do you know what? I'm a bit worried about this what do you think about this idea? And I said, what I'll do is I'll pretend I can't get a gear when we're about to go off on the formation lap and let everybody pass me and I'll start from the back of the grid and stay out of trouble. And that's exactly what I did. I didn't tell the team. I didn't tell Vauxhall. I didn't tell my team manager. Nothing. Because there was absolute flap at the start of the race when I can't get a gear and I'm on the radio saying, guys, there's no clutch in the car. I can't get it off the line. Just a complete load of bullshit. And everybody <laughs> went past, all the BMs, all the guys in my class, all the Volkswagen Golfs and my teammate, Louise Aiken-Walker, everybody went past me. And I knew that this car was good enough to pass them all during the race. And I started plumb last. Even the safety car that started at the back of the grid got off the line in front of me. And on the warm-up lap to come back to the grid, I passed the, pay the, the safety car, obviously, I'd started on right on the back of the grid. And by about two, three laps in, I was up to the rightful position leading the class, went on to get fastest lap, led the class and got enough points. I think I won the championship by one point from James Weaver. And that was really, that was the start of my lifelong career battle with BMW. Uh, and it continued virtually through my entire British Touring Car Championship series. I was always in in the opposition to the BMWs. BMW had had virtually won the championship and won races until we arrived on the scene with a Vauxhall and then started to kick their ass. So that just changed it slightly. <laughs> the uh, the Cavalier became the car that we saw you race here. When we were watching the two-litre series, we would get the highlights here, edited down with Murray Walker commentating and it was all quite exciting, but I've looked at some of those videos of those early Cavaliers, John. They looked evil, totally evil. 
Yeah, they were. They were. I mean, we we went from an Astra to, to a Cavalier and we tried a, I mean, a Cavalier was a front-wheel drive vehicle and that's what most of the, the British Touring Car Championship was. But there were ideas that we could maybe run a rear-wheel drive one because we had a four-wheel drive Cavalier. So that meant we could theoretically run a rear-wheel drive one. So we actually built a spare car and we put a, we used a BMW rear axle in it and I can't remember what the gearbox was, but it had so many right angle changes from the drive at the rear uh, to the engine uh, that it just lost so much power. Lovely balanced car, but just too slow. So we then just went back to the front wheel drive and started to work uh, and develop that car. And it spent a lot of its early test sessions on two wheels. I mean, it would just literally want to throw itself over all the time. And it, we worked away and worked away and, I can't remember how many races in, but we started to win. And one of the things we, we had was a, a contract with Dunlop. And Dunlop had, it was at the time when you had Dunlop tyres, Yokohama tyres, and, and I think it Michelin at that stage came in on a very small way. And they all had a strength and a weakness at some point during a race or qualifying. Dunlop had a qualifying tyre that would last one lap absolutely one lap wonders. If I tried to do a lap and a half, it would jump off the road. They just turned to chewing gum. But if you got that lap right, my goodness, what a load of grip the car had. And I think I ended up on, on pole position for most of those races. But in the race, the tyre would crumble, it would fall apart. The the guys on Yokohamas and, 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 uh, and the Michelins would just leave us for dead and it actually got to the end of the season and it was there was a couple of points I think between myself and the BMW of Will Hoy and again my qualifying tyres had done really well but during the race they were falling apart and it cost me the championship because I lost it literally I think by one point and I remember telling the guy the, the, the guy for Dunlop was a bloke called Tony Gillum Really, really nice man. And adrenaline pumping, the usual Cleland opening his mouth, told the bloke to stick his tyres up his ass because that's what had cost me the championship, that his tyres kept falling apart. And it was the wrong thing to say. And I realised the moment I'd said it, it was the wrong thing to say. But it was just the heat of the moment. I'd lost a championship by one point. And if you'd managed to get the tyres to last a bit better during the race... That'd have been fine. You should never do that in motorsport. You should never do that at all anyway, but you should never do that in motorsport. No matter where it is in the world, it's a very small sport globally. People crop up in different places. And years later, that comment came out to bite me because I was in Australia for Bathurst. Um, I was with... Tony Scott in the Pinnacle car and we were running, I think, Yokohama tyres and knowing what I did, having driven with Scafe on Yokohama tyres, they weren't at that stage the best on a V8 and Dunlop were there and I said, well, listen, why don't we go and have a conversation with Dunlop and see if we can get some tyres? And of course, we go up to the Dunlop unit and we have the conversation about you know, would you sell us tyres? And they said, the only way we'll sell you tyres is if you sign a document 
that says you won't tell them to shove her up her ass. <laughs> I said, oh, right, okay. Well, I didn't actually mean that. You know? <laughs> so the only way I got the use of Dunlop tyres for Bathurst on that Pinnacle car was to sign up to say that I wouldn't in any way slate, slag, or aim the tyres <laughs> back at Dunlop. Um, and as it turned out, we did a real good job in that race and ended up highest privateer. And I still think we might hold the record. I think we finished seventh. And I think we might still hold the record for the highest position privateer um, on Dunlop tyres. So you never, ever know when someone works for one team, the next year they're working for another team, the next year they could be working for somebody else. So very early on, you learn don't don't comment too much um, on something that might come back to bite you, you know. And, and it might get to you from the other side of the world four or five years later. It's amazing how it uh, how it all works out. Absolutely. Um, does it does it yeah. annoy you, John, that the that whole the ninety two thing with Soper and Harvey? Our listeners, it's been well told over the years. You've talked about it many times in that final deciding race at Silverstone where you got unloaded and lost the championship. Does it irk you a little that that gets mentioned maybe more than your championship wins or is it a case of, look, it's an important, probably the most pivotal moment in the history of the British Touring Car Championship. So uh, it's pretty good when you look at it all these years later. Um, yeah, I mean, it does irk me slightly that people remember that more than they remember me winning two championships or all the really good races that I've won. Um but that's just, I think, the way it is. It was, it put British touring cars on the front pages of everything. It raised the profile of touring cars globally because at that stage, you know, I know you lads, I mean, I know Scafey when I went out to drive with Scafey. I mean, he would tell me more about my races than I knew because you watched it and you got it canned and watched it the following week. So it was a... It was well watched. It was a global event. It then became a set of regulations that was used in Australia and virtually every country around the world, including America. Um, and it, it, it just happened to be all the stars aligned for that. It was a championship deciding event. It had someone as high profile as Steve Soper as the other party. It had me as the... Uh, the 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 Vauxhall, which was the the people's car, the 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 fleet car against the posy BMW, if you want, and 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 it was the local boy makes good kind of thing, and it all and the, what do you call it hit the fan, and it all went wrong. But the, what people don't really know is that Steve and I had shared a car in the Will Hire Twenty Four Hours a number of years before with Tony Lanfranchi. So I knew Steve a long time before that, and I'd spent 24 hours in a car with him where we weren't trying to beat each other to death. Um, So I knew him and respected him highly. And the car that he was driving, um, the teammate to Tim Harvey, I was offered the Tim Harvey car because um, I'd broken my back and my sternum in, a, in an accident at the end of, of or, or the, the, pre, the weekend before, or two weekends before the final round. 
um, of this penultimate round at Donington. That's what it was. I'd been testing at Donington. We'd been trying ABS. I'd got on the grass to avoid a single-seater, as we were sharing it in those days, uh, with every Tom, Dick and Harry on the track. And I ended up on a wet grass. ABS wouldn't let me apply the brakes. And I couldn't lean over and switch the ABS off because a bloody switch was in the middle of the dash. And we'd been trying to improve the ABS to match BMW with theirs. So I hit the wall head on, broke my sternum, broke my back, and I only had Donington to do and Silverstone. And if I could hang in there, the championship was mine. I managed to do Donington with lots of painkiller and jags. I managed to, it was a wet race, so I I think I finished third or something. So that still kept me in the lead of the championship. And then we go, I was lying in hospital in Nottingham after having or trying to recover from the accident, and my phone rang, and it was the, the guy who was running um, the, 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 the BMW team. Oh, I tell you, no, it was Vic Lee had asked me to drive the BMW before Harvey took the drive. He wanted me in the car for the season. And I had said, no, nah, I don't believe you'll give me the same treatment as you will give Steve because Steve was a superstar and all that. And I said, no. So the irony was that that BMW could have been mine. But to go back to the accident, I've had this accident. We've got now Donington to go and then Silverstone. And I'm lying in hospital. And the guy who was going to run the Renault team the following year phoned me and said, would I drive the Renault? And it was a good some, I think it was a Gordini, or a, I can't remember what it was, but it wasn't the, the, the ultimate Laguna, as it turned out. And I said, um, yeah, yeah, maybe we have that conversation and um, let me finish the season. So the season ended, as you know, with the accident with Harvey. And the irony was that I turned the Renault drive down. He wins the championship because Steve and I have a, a, a crash. Um, and he goes to Renault and took the number one on the door of the Renault for the drive that I had turned down. So the irony was that I turned down both of the drives that Tim Harvey ultimately got. So I dislike him more than I dislike uh, Steve Soper. But <laughs> Steve and I get on really well, and, and he laughs about it as much as I do because, uh, listen, it happened. It was a, an incident. Um, they wanted... The governing body of motorsport in the UK wanted to make an example of somebody because it had been massively publicised and there was front pages of everything. Uh, the, even the, the, the newspapers, the regular newspapers were covered. It, it was on every TV, every radio station. Honestly, it was huge. And then we, Steve and I had both employed barristers uh, to fight the case. We were going to court. And a, a guy who's, you know, the Australians will remember, a guy called Wynne Percy, who drove for Tom Walkinshaw um, many years before. Tim, uh, Wynne, was actually the um, driving standards advisor in the court that day. And the night before the court case, I phoned Steve up and I said, listen, this is silly. I'm not going to get my championship back. Harvey's not going to get penalised. They're not going to take it off him. And... I think the MSA, the Motorsport Association, want your driving licence, and I don't think that's fair. It's happened. What we should do is go in to court, holding hands, and say that it was a racing incident. 
And Steve thought for a moment and he said, nah, he said, I don't trust you. He said, you say it first. I said, okay, fine, you don't trust me. So we went in, holding hands, and when they opened up, you could see where it was heading. And when it was my turn to speak, I said, guys, I'd like say, you know, we've looked at it, we've replayed the coverage, we've replayed the videos multiple times. We both agree it was a racing incident. You know, I was probably as much to blame as Steve was. It was just, I think, one of those things. And you could see the smile on Wynn Percy's face because he exactly, he knew what was happening. He <laughs> knew we were at it. Um, the stewards were, there was smoke pouring out of their ears because they wanted, they wanted a scalp and I think they wanted Steve's scalp. Our, our barristers knew nothing of it. We didn't tell them that either. And of course, they were just as pissed off when we came out of court. <laughs> but what happened was we both got off with a, a bit of a reprimand. It cost us a few grand to, um, to, to pay the barristers. And I said to Steve, right, well, now what we need to do is make sure this never happens again. So we created... Um, a touring car drivers association, and we we took. I think we threw two grand in each, and that helped to pay for the helicopter to be there um, to take away somebody if there was an incident. Um, it helped to improve the driving standards because what we would do is we got everybody together and we said, right, here's the rules from now on. If you're at the B pillar, this happens. You know, if you do that, this is going to happen. And we'll police it ourselves as drivers before the governing body actually drag us into the room to have the conversation. And that was what really helped to tidy up the driving standards a lot better than they were. It was that whole incident between Steve and I. And we, mm. we remain very good friends and we speak because he was a BMW for years. And um, he would phone me up and say, what do you do with such and such in your workshop or... You know, what about such and such? And so we, we keep in touch and we see each other at various Goodwood events. And I have a massive respect for him and he has a massive respect for me. And he's just pissed off that they continue to, most of the time he gets the blame for the incident. But if I had a pound for every time somebody's asked me about it, I definitely wouldn't be working today. <laughs> Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. Who was the most fun driver to take the mickey out of, to rip the piss out of in those glory BTCC days in, in the 90s. Who was your who was your favourite that you used to like to wind up? I used to wind them all up, but uh, to be fair, um, there was a couple that um, you, you could hook, line and sinker, um, Rickard Rydell. Uh, Rick was a lovely, lovely bloke and a really good pal of mine. And Will Hoy sadly passed away a few years back and Will was my good mate and probably one of my best mates in touring cars. And um, he and I and, and and Rick and a lot of the others, to be fair, but the three of us would play golf quite a lot. We weren't exactly Tiger Woods standard, but we were fairly handy. 
and um, you could wind Rick up. You know, he'd be on the tee and he's got the backswing going and you'd say, Rick, 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 stop, stop. Your feet are too close together. And and then he'd have another go and he'd, he'd reposition himself and then up with the backswing. Oh, Rick, Rick, no, wait a minute. They're just too far apart now, you know. So you could wind Rickard up brilliantly. And, and and I could say to him, you know, if he qualified on the front row, which he was a super, super qualifier, and I would I would go up to him before the race and say, Rick, just watch your mirrors because I'm going to pass you probably, I don't know, maybe turn two or something like that. Just watch. Give me a bit of space, would you? And I could wind him up perfectly. But a lovely bloke. Again, we, we talk uh, frequently. Uh, we keep in touch. And um, some of the stuff that you could get away with with um, – in those days, we could get away with murder because Alan Gow was up for the challenge. Alan Gow was, he was right behind it. We would go out for dinner, a gang of us, and he was funny as. And it was always the right thing to do was to keep on the right side of Gow. And um, you could wind him up more than anyone else because Brands Hatch, Alan had always had a, a company car supplied by one of the, well, it was Saab on this occasion that gave him the, the pace car. And what he would do is he would lead us out on um, d- d- in the morning before the race. You'd go out in your, your road car and you'd go up through the sunroof and you'd wave to the spectators and sign autographs and all of that. And Alan would lead us around in this Saab convertible that he had. It was a bit posy. And we, um, we uh, decided with the help of Saab to get four space savers. And while we were all in the driver's briefing on the Sunday morning, uh, we got somebody to take the Saab with the pretext of washing it, take it away and put four space savers on it so that when he was then going to climb in it to take us out and lead the pack round, this thing had bicycle tyres on it. Well, he came out the driver's briefing and he absolutely lost his sense of humour, just completely lost his sense of (laughs) humour. refused to drive it, was going to do all sorts of things to every one of us. But Will, I think, came up with the best um, the best piss take with Gow ever. Um, Silverstone, final round, um, we've got a stripper organised and Gow doesn't know this girl at all and he doesn't watch any of the soaps but this was it was either EastEnders or something like that that this girl was meant to be a an actress from and we put her in the car because they wanted to film in the car with Gow in front of the pack of drivers and this was an actress very famous and um, we'd sold them the whole idea so <laughs> we drive out the pit lane and by the time she'd got halfway around the track, she'd taken all her clothes off inside this car. <laughs> and again, by the time Gow came back, he, he couldn't come back into the pits until she put her clothes back on again, but she'd taken everything off by the time they'd got halfway around the lap. So he was doing his nut, and he knew exactly who it was. It was Will Hoy and I that had been responsible for it. It was hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm surprised he still talks to me, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> they were... Um, but I think, I think I, one, of, one, of, one of the best ones I, I think I, I got him perfectly was my sponsorship uh, on the side of my car was the GM card. It was a credit card uh, with General Motors. <clears throat> and um, 
there's a, ba- a gang of us out for dinner, including Steve Soper and Paul Radisich and his girlfriend and all manner of people. I think it was a table of about 12 of us. And um, I said to them, uh, Gow had, he smoked in those days and he got up from the table politely and went outside to smoke. But he made a mistake of leaving his jacket over the chair. So we went in his wallet, took his credit card out of it, put his wallet back in, and we got back, sat down again, and the bill arrived. And I said, no, it's okay, I'll get the bill because I get um, some some free money on my credit card from General Motors. And everybody went, oh, that's a good idea, right, fine. So I get the bill, and um, I go outside, and it was before the days of PIN numbers, and I'm going to sign Alan Gow on the credit card slip. So... I'm just about to use Alan's credit card to pay this. It was about 800 quid or something like that for the bill. And he puts his hand on my shoulder and he said, John, I can't let you pay this. You've got to let me give you some cash. I said, no, 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 really, it's okay. That was a mistake I made. I should have taken 100 quid of cash off him as well. And I didn't. I said, no, no, Alan, it's, it's on me. It's on me. You sure? Yeah, 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 yeah. So I sign Alan Gow, use his credit card to pay the bill. We then go downstairs and play snooker and get him occupied in a corner somewhere. Well, Louise, uh, I think it was Louise, was Paul Radisich's girlfriend at the time, put the credit card back in the wallet. So he knows nothing of it. And about 14 days later, when his credit card statement arrived in, he phoned my office here and he swore for half an hour and didn't repeat himself once. Jesus, he was angry. I said to him, Alan, Alan, I'm, I'm really sorry. Well, well, it, was a, it was a bit of a fun. I'll pay, I'll pay, we'll pay you back, really. No, 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 no. I'll get even with you. So he did. Next race was Snetterton. And you, you, you know, what you do in a, a weekend race, you go out, bit of free practice, you go, you bed some brakes, bed some tyres, whatever. Every time I went out the pit lane, I come back in, he was standing at the weighbridge. He put me on the weighbridge. So I right, okay, fine. So I go back out and I'm bedding the pads in or the discs or something. I've come back in. He put me in the weighbridge again. By the end of practice, I'd been on the weighbridge 12 times. <laughs> and every, every time every time I'm sitting there, I know exactly what he's up to. And he's just shaking his head, and he's got his credit card in his hand, showing me the credit card through the windscreen. <laughs> I thought, you bastard. <laughs> <laughs> um, JC, with the, um, the end of... Super touring. I mean, it, it got so big. The budgets were massive. The, the the exposure, as you said before, was huge. I mean, it was all around the world. It was kind of a world championship of touring cars based in England, really, because the big name drivers came. The manufacturers all wanted a piece of it. But you finished up in in ninety nine. It was probably a good time to finish because you didn't have to. Then you weren't around in that era when the championship really was was crumbled really it was standard type cars you, you you got out pretty much when it was at its peak of that that two liter era yeah i mean that was uh, the the championship just got massive because if you think there was a world there were three world cup races the first one was held at monza and i remember guys like uh mark scaife coming over driving the nissan and i, I i've unearthed a, a, an entry list for that race at monza which i think was i don't know 80, no, it might have been 92 or 
91 or something like that. I really can't remember. And it was like a who's who for ex-Formula One drivers. I mean, there was some fantastic names in it. And it then had, we had one at Donington, then we had a World Cup at uh, Paul Ricard. And it was just, globally, there were super tourers coming from every corner of the world to race in these events. And the championship just got so big and you would have the best cars. Then you would have the best transporters. Then you would have the best motorhomes. Then you would have the best carbon fiber pit trolleys. And, you know, the the the, the Formula, ex-Formula One, ex-World sports car drivers that were being paid daft money. And all of those things, all paid for by a manufacturer that sold cars through the week. And it was a championship at the time that, I mean, speaking as a Volvo dealer, and a Volvo dealer who... Um, was deeply involved at the time when they started in in motorsport, and I on a Monday morning I could if they want to race I could see a difference. People would come in to show them and they say, "Is that that car that was racing at the weekend?" And it changed their image. And it's a bit like motorsport changed the image of of Subaru, for instance. If it wasn't for Pro Drive Subaru and a guy called Colin McRae. Subarus would still have been used for farmers taking bales of hay to the sheep. They would never have sold a cult car that's a collector's item, if you want. Um, they would never have won anything in motorsport if it hadn't been for pro-driving Colin McRae. And you could argue the same for various different manufacturers. You know, Alfa Romeo, Mercedes, you know, Vauxhall. We, we didn't really make special Vauxhalls just because we won a championship, but it did enhance the 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 value, if you want, of their advertising. I mean, we would have full-page adverts ready for all the daily papers if we won a race at the weekend, bank holiday weekend. We'd have a paper, full-page advert ready for the, you know, Monday, Tuesday morning. It was amazing stuff, and it was just, it was getting silly because the car I bought back, my, my son Jamie found my 98 car, uh, for sale, on, well, it wasn't actually for sale. It was being shown off by somebody on on um, on Facebook, and by the time we inquired about it, all of a sudden it was for sale. It was my car, and um, we went down. We looked at it, and if I, I took one look at the pedals, you can change the chassis numbers, but this was number one. So it genuinely was number one. I had a look at the pedals, and my pedals were completely different to the way that the, the likes of Ivan Muller, for instance, would, would drive his car because a left foot breaker. I don't left foot brake, so my braking clutch and stuff were in different places. But what this guy that was selling the car didn't know was this was the car that Brock rolled at the chase when we ran the two-litre race there when he was sharing with Derek Warwick. In qualifying, if you recollect, Brocky rolled this car. I think it was sponsored by the Australian Grand Prix. Yeah, yep. And the, the the guys at TAFE beat it back into shape for the race. But inside, if you're sitting in the back of the car holding onto the grab handle above you, um, all of that area there was all dented and bashed in. And as soon as I opened the door and saw that, I realized it definitely was my car. So we we bought it. And I gave the guy 50 grand for it. Uh, we spent a lot of time and money putting it together. It's probably, I don't know, they're selling now for anywhere between 150 and 200 grand. 
mainly because there's a bit of a championship for them. However, at the time when Triple Eight built these two cars, one for me and one for Warwick, I think it was, um, they were £394,000, was what Vauxhall got charged by Triple Eight for each car. So there was £800,000 between the two cars. Now, £800,000 would do a whole championship now with change back in the British touring cars, the way the rules have changed. So mm. it just got completely out of hand. I mean, it was just silly. And we could see it was going to bust. And as soon as one manufacturer left, another left. And it was... I didn't leave for that reason. I left touring cars at that time because... Um, there was a couple of things happening within the, the team, uh, which I wasn't just completely happy with. I could see the manufacturers, some were getting a bit nervous. And also, my father passed away at the uh, in, in, in 2000, and um, he wasn't well during the back end of 99, and I knew I was going to have to sort of concentrate back into business 100% again. So that was fortuitous timing. Um, did I miss it? Mm, you're damn right I did. Um, and then I went and played a bit with sports cars. But ah, I thought, nah, we've been there, done that, got the T-shirt. But I did continue to come down to Australia and race there right through until I think 205, 206, something like that. And um, I think that earlier, if I'd, if I'd looked at Australia earlier in my career, I think I'd probably still be living there today. I'd probably have stayed out, raced in V8s. And um, probably made a good life for myself out there because I, I loved it. Every time I came to Australia, I loved it. Was there ever an offer to, to come out full-time that you had to think about or, or turn down because you had the business and, and the racing in the UK? Did, did anyone put something on the table to, to come? Yeah, there, there, there was an occasion uh, where it was discussed, but there was you know, a couple of times when you come out um, for, the, for the Europeans that would come out uh, to do Queensland and then Bathurst was uh, I, I got the chance to drive with uh, the Kmart team, the, the Murphy's team and the offer was to go out there and do uh, Queensland but go out a month before, you know, do a bit of testing, work with a team, do the race and then spend the time between Queensland and Bathurst again uh, so it, was, it meant I was going to have to spend about three, you know, two and a half to three months over there. And I, wife and four kids, and that probably wasn't really making sense. And I had the chance between Dick Johnson's team and the Kmart team. And I, I, I said, I, I couldn't, I couldn't commit to that time. Um, and that's why I ended up sort of, having a, a slightly longer association with, with Brad and Kim because it was, I think it was Phil Brannigan that introduced me to, to Kim Jones and Brad I knew, but I didn't know him well enough to phone him up and say, listen, you need me as a driver. Um, and that was really how it all came about, but there was an opportunity to to go out and, and race there in, in V8 supercars because for some reason or another, when I got in a V8, whether it was at Queensland or whether we tested at Phillip Island with Brocky, um, I'd, I'd been all over the joint. And the other one, what was the the the, ra the, the horse race track as well at Melbourne? Um, Sandown. Sandown. 
Sander, Sander, yeah, Sander. It wasn't Philip. It wasn't um, uh, Queensland in those days. It was Sandown, and then um, a, 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 and then Bathurst. But I just couldn't commit to to. to the, it would have meant selling the business here, and lots of different changes. And I was probably getting too old in the job, and you know, I'd maybe have managed another two or three years. And actually, if I'd done it much earlier in life. I know where I'd have preferred to be sitting nowadays. I'd sitting on the Queensland coast as opposed to sitting in the cold of Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the other thing too is that uh, I wanted to ask you about. In July, there is a super touring historic event over your way at Brands Hatch and there is a couple of Kiwi fellows uh, who you've raced against and been around over the years, Gregory Murphy from New Zealand and young Stephen Richards who lives here in Melbourne. And they're going to come and race some super tourers. Now, the big question is, will you be there with the Vectra ready to meet them? I will definitely be there with the Vectra. And um, I, uh, it's, it's going to be a big event. I think there's quite a few of the New Zealand boys coming across. And I think they're trying to get as many super tourers. There's a lot of super tourers here in the UK that have sporadically raced. And then the guys that own them have either decided that they do take more money to run them than they anticipated or they they've they can't drive them at 100 percent of their capacity so the idea is we're trying to get as many out as we possibly can and it'll be a cracking event because midsummer um one of the races at uh, one of the days uh it'll be on the grand prix track which is one of the astonishingly great tracks still left old school stuff and then the following day it's on the, the little indie track, which you, you can sit in the grandstand and watch all of the action all of the time. So I, I think it'll be good to catch up with Murph. Uh, Murph and um, uh, uh, um, Russell Ingle, I think, were in one of the Vectras when Warwick and I were out there. Uh, so they were in part of our team. And I'd known Murph for years anyway. I've met him loads of times at Bathurst. And, you know, Steve-O, again, the same, when he was over here working with Ray Malik. So I know them both, and, yeah, it'll be good fun to catch up, but I do definitely aim to kick their arses. <laughs> so the first shot has been fired officially. <laughs> no, I think it'll, it'll be fun. It'll be good to see as many of them lads as possible. I actually don't know. I'm saying that. That's a bit confident. I don't even know what they're driving. Any uh, idea I what can, Murphy's going to uh, be driving? Yes, 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 I can tell you this. He's driving a uh, an ex-Matt Neal Primera, which I think was a 98 championship car or somewhere about there, and Steve's oh, being let oh, loose no. in a TWR Volvo S40, a 97-spec car that his dad Jim raced here uh, in the local series the next year in 98. So you, you've, you've got period oh, cars there right. that your car was around in the same time, so... You might have your work cut out for you here. No, listen, now you've told me what they're driving, I retract that statement about kicking their ass now. The, um, these two cars will be good because that Volvo was quick as. And then Nissan's, Ray Malik uh, did a, a super job of, of building those Nissans to a, to a level that they were the class act at the time. So, yeah, I might, might not be so easy. I might have to use a bit more cunning and guile than my normal. <laughs> you mentioned Colin yep. McRae earlier, John. Was there ever – I seem to remember a story at the time some years ago 
Was there ever a chance that someone tried to get him to come and do Bathurst with with BJR? Um, to get Colin to do Bathurst? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm I'm not I'm not aware of it, but uh, I mean it wouldn't surprise me because if you just look at Colin's career, I mean he did Dakar, he he'd done everything, and if you told Colin, you know he could drive it, it had four wheels and a steering wheel, he would go to the other end of the world and drive it. Colin was just one of these kind of guys; he didn't matter what it was, he would drive it. He was just a an outstanding driver, outstanding talent. Really, it was just a great shame what happened, you know. Mm, mm. But yeah, I, I've absolutely no doubt. But you see, everybody, everybody, every touring car driver that I know in super touring at some stage was desperate to drive a car in Bathurst, desperate to go out there and drive it. But not every every one of them. Not really good guys like Alan Menu, for instance, um, James Thompson. Um, Fabrizio Giovanardi, um, even Muller struggled at Bathurst. Um, it was only when he got to somewhere, a normal track like um, Sandown, that he got a decent result. But a lot of these guys, very, very few of them, managed to dial in properly, mentally, into Bathurst and get a, get a right result out of it. I know, I know, I know. You're hating on me right now, aren't you? That is the end of part one of our chat with John Cleland. As always, the Scott in super form. Some great stories there. Bad news is this is the end of part one. Bad news, you've got to wait till next week for part two. But good news is that there's a part two. And in part two, we go really in depth and we talk a whole pile about his time racing in Australia, in V8s at Bathurst, with Brock, with Scaife, with the privateer teams that he drove for, and of course with his great friends from Aubrey, Kim and Brad Jones. Uh, we dive into the mailbag too. National Motor Racing Museum, Couch Racer questions. John answers your questions. That's part two on the pod next week. Quick reminder, every Tuesday, Castrol Motorsport News podcast with Andrew Van Leeuwen, Stefan Bartholomeus. If you don't listen to it regularly, you really should. It's your must-listen to for the best insight and analysis award-winning podcast stuff. I'll be back next week with the V8Sweet podcast on Wednesday with part two of my chat with John Cleland. And on Friday, uh, every week, uh, depends on, sometimes it's Thursdays, depending on the news of the week, Repco Supercars Weekly. It's our little update look at what's going on in the world of supercars. And as always, there is plenty happening there. I hope you've enjoyed this chat with John Cleland, part one. If you're listening down the track and both parts are in the archive, go and have a listen to part two now. I think you'll really enjoy it. If you're listening to it when we've dropped part one, well, seven days, it's worth the wait. Plenty of chat with John Cleland about the mountain. Hope you enjoyed this one. I will chat to you again next week. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out.